Have I told you recently that I love you? I love you. And so do all our pastors. It's just such a privilege and a joy for us to serve Jesus with you. And if you're a, a guest today or you're new to Gateway, we want to say we love you too. You're welcome here. We pray that you will find a home and, and a permanent home among us. That You'll find a spiritual family. If you have your Bibles, we've been working through a study of the book of Matthew. So if you would open your Bibles or your app, whatever you're using, and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We are going to meet a very interesting character this morning. Let me introduce you to John the Baptist. Ready for the new kingdom. As you are cleansed. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So says the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. The Old Testament ends with hope and a promise that God will visit his people. Both mercy and judgment. And that's a powerful picture of the Messiah, the Son of God, 
being baptized. If you needed a reason for baptism, that's the best reason we have. Even Jesus was baptized. And if you've never been baptized in water and you want to follow Jesus, it's a must. You must be baptized. And John the Baptist came baptizing. But before we get to that, the Old Testament ends with this incredible prophecy about Elijah coming, and then there are 400 years of silence. That's a lot of silence. Let's stop and talk about the offense of silence for a minute. Do you ever give people the silent treatment? When Mary and I were first dating, there were sometimes awkward silences and Sometimes in those awkward silences, I would say something that made it even more awkward. And immediately, Mary would look out the driver's side, the, the passenger side window, and be fascinated with whatever was out there, and the silence would fill the vehicle. Mary and I know someone who was so angry and so offended and so upset, they didn't speak to their family for one whole year. 365 days, they were silent. They lived in the same house. They went about all their business. And this person never said one word to their spouse or their two children for a whole year. Giving people the silent treatment is really ungodly. And it's unloving. God wants us to communicate. He, he wants us to share our hearts, to walk in the light, to not be silent. What about when you feel like God's silent? Maybe there's someone who feels that way this morning. God's not speaking to me. Maybe you've been asking God for something month after month or year after year, and there's just silence. Maybe you're thinking, God has left me. God's abandoned me, or worse, does God even exist? When we give people the silent treatment, it's usually vindictive. It's to punish people. But the God of the Bible is not like that. God is loving. God is kind, gracious, and good, and merciful. When God is silent, he hasn't left us. He's not rejecting us. He might withdraw a sense of his presence or even disguise his presence for a season like he did with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But he does not abandon us. And he's not punishing us. God is near and at work, even in the silence. Sometimes God's silence is to test our faith and make it stronger. Sometimes God's silent because we're not asking the right question. Maybe we're asking, why did this happen instead of, Lord, what are you doing through this? Sometimes God's silence to increase our desire and expectation for him. And sometimes God's silence is to build expectation anticipation, 
so he can multiply his blessings to us. And that's exactly what this 400 years of silence was. It was building desperation, expectation, anticipation for the arrival of the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the greatest event in human history. Romans 5 says, at the right time, at the fullness of time, Christ came into the world and died for the ungodly. For 400 years, the Jewish people were conquered by the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, and finally the Romans. But they kept believing in the Messiah. They kept believing in the promise of those prophetic words and that fulfillment one day would come. The desperation only grew stronger and the conditions for the Messiah's coming only became more conducive. Under the Roman rule, there was a common language, a common peace, and a common communication system, a comprehensive road system that allowed for mobility and communication throughout the whole Roman Empire. And that was the point in human history where suddenly the silence was broken. All kinds of signs and wonders took place. An old priest by the name of Zechariah went into the temple one day and he met an angel in there. And the angel spoke prophetic promises to him. He didn't believe them. And he came out, he couldn't speak. He went in speaking, he came out not speaking. A sign and a wonder had happened. His old elderly wife, Elizabeth, couldn't have a child. Suddenly she was pregnant with a child in her old age after decades and decades of infertility. Then a young virgin teenager by the name of Mary was visited by the same angel, Gabriel, and told that the power of the Most High would overshadow her and that she would miraculously conceive the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There were dreams, there were visions, there was all kinds of divine activity, there was angelic appearances, celestial choirs singing in the sky on the birth of the Messiah. The silence had been broken after 400 years. There was an explosion of divine activity like the Disney work fireworks at the end of a day at Disney World. This would have gone all over Judea. People would have been talking. Strange things were happening. Supernatural things, divine things, extraordinary things. Prophetic promises were finally being fulfilled. And that takes us to the end of Matthew chapter 2. Between the end of Matthew chapter 2 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, there are 30 more years of relative silence. Can you feel the drama? Can you feel the suspense, the anticipation? God is a master at this. 400 years, nothing. Suddenly, an explosion of divine activity. Then, 30 years of silence. And suddenly, after hundreds of years of no prophet, John 
the Baptist comes out of the wilderness. In those days, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3 says, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You might want to just highlight that, underline that little phrase, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Jesus, we've sung this morning how powerful your word is. We declare it again, Lord, thank you. Your word is alive, it's living and active and powerful. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that takes the word of God and makes it live to each one of us personally. And we welcome you to do that this morning. We welcome your divine activity in this place, your angelic activity. And we ask that you will renew our thinking. We ask that you will touch our hearts and change us and Move us into all that's in your heart for us this morning. We ask this in that beautiful, wonderful name we've been singing about. We love your name, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for it. Amen. The title of this message is Breaking the Silence. And we're going to begin by looking at who is this guy called John the Baptist. His name is John. John means God's gracious gift or God shows favor. And his last name is not Baptist. That's his function. He could equally be called John the Baptizer. And this word Baptist literally means to plunge under. So he could be called John the Plunger Under. He was wild, scary. He was 30 years old from the Nazarite sect, which meant he wouldn't have cut his hair or his beard for 30 years. 
He didn't drink alcohol. And his diet was grasshoppers and wild honey. Now, grasshoppers were a food for the poor, so he wasn't absolutely, totally weird. Verse 4 says he wore a garment of camel's hair. Camel's hair was rough, coarse garment, cloth, and he had a leather belt around it. Jesus says in Matthew 11, speaking of John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? No, soft clothes belong in a king's palace. You went out to see a prophet. And John was dressed in these rough garments. In fact, the Bible tells us that John lived in the wilderness until the day of his appearing. Well, John was not just wild. He was fiery. Verse 7, he called the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. Literally, he was saying, you're a family of serpents. You're children of the devil. And he was making reference to Genesis chapter 3, where Satan took the form of a serpent. And John was the voice. Verse 3 says, He was the voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John chapter 1 tells us the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John if he was the Messiah. John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah then? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet that was to come? No, I'm not the prophet. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. But John was a prophet. In fact, he was more than a prophet. Jesus says in Matthew 11, no one born of women was greater than John the Baptist. He is Elijah who is to come. Not only was he a prophet, he moved in the spirit of Elijah, turning people back to God, their father. And he was the forerunner of the Messiah. And John was probably filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1 tells us his father was filled with the Spirit. His mother was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the hand of the Lord was upon him, which is a metaphor for the Spirit being upon him and anointing him. And you remember the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 tells us that when Elizabeth, who was John's mother, was pregnant with John in her womb, Mary who was carrying the Messiah in her womb, the Virgin Mary came and spent six months with them, or three months with them. And the Bible says that when Mary, who was carrying the Messiah's voice, came into the sound of Elizabeth's ears, John in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. And Elizabeth was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. John was probably full of the Spirit. And he came for two reasons. The first reason he came was to get people ready for the Messiah's arrival. Prepare the way of the Lord. You know, there's always preparation to receive God. 
There is always preparation for God's visitation. There's preparation going on right now for God to visit you. Revival is always preceded and always sustained by prayer. That's preparation. The Holy Spirit's always moving, preparing people for salvation. It doesn't just happen like that. There's been preparation gone on. And we had a prophetic word this morning in the first service that the Lord is preparing a platform for Gateway Church, a platform of faith, a platform of repentance, a platform of humility, and a platform of patience or perseverance. There's always a preparation. John got people ready by confronting unrighteousness and having people confess their sins. In fact, Matthew 14 tells us, John ended up in prison because of that, and he ended up losing his life, losing his head, literally, because he confronted King Herod, who had unlawfully taken his brother Philip's wife. And he ended up losing his life. John not only prepared the way for Jesus and made people ready for his arrival, he revealed Jesus in John chapter 1. He said to his disciples as Jesus was walking by one day, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those two disciples followed after Jesus and became Jesus' disciples. So what can we learn from Matthew chapter 3? What can we learn from the life of John the Baptist? Number one, we can learn the power of one. Verse 1 says, in those days, John came. And verse 5 says, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. Just one guy, and a weird guy. And the whole region is turned upside down and changed. That's the power of one. Don't ever feel helpless or hopeless when you are alone in the purposes of God. One with God is a majority. One person can change the spiritual climate of a family, of a business, of a company, of a workplace, of a school, a city, and even a nation. It only takes one person to change. Several years ago, a group of us traveled to India, and when you go to India, the people that we go with, they always like us to ride on the trains, because if you don't ride on a train in India, you really haven't experienced India. And Bombay is the best place in the world to ride an Indian train, because 15 million people take the trains every single day, and all of them were on the train we got on. We got on at the beginning station, Victoria Station, and there was, uh, there was room in our car. And so I thought I would stand by the door where there was fresh air coming in. And I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen at the next stop. We pulled into the next stop and hordes, I mean hordes of people, didn't just come into the car. 
They pushed and shoved and fought their way into the car. It was horrible. They were mean and surly and nasty. And I got mean and surly and nasty just like they were. And so I was pushing like this as they were pushing against me. Well, you can't stop the mob. And finally, station after station, fighting and pushing and shoving, we were like this. And I got convicted. I thought, what am I doing? I'm here to share the love of Jesus. What am I thinking? I want to change this, Lord. And an idea came to me. I had some chocolate candies in my pack. So I had to somehow maneuver, get my pack off, get the, get the chocolate candies, and then I started handing out the chocolate candies with a smile. Would you like a candy? Oh. And they started to smile. And I thought, wow. And then at the next stop, I said, let's help these people on. And so instead of pushing and shoving and trying to keep them up, we were making way for them. And the whole atmosphere of that train car changed. One person and a bag of chocolates. (laughs) And that's pathetic. But John the Baptist changed the whole spiritual atmosphere of Israel. John 10 tells us he didn't even do any miracles. He did it by speaking the truth. When we give our lives to Jesus, we become like John the Baptist, only greater. We're prophetic like John. We have the Holy Spirit and the gifts of prophecy within us. We're forerunners like John. John announced and prepared the way for Jesus' first coming. We're announcing and preparing the way for Jesus' second coming. Jesus said in Matthew 11, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist because we're in the kingdom of heaven. John could only point to its coming. John pointed the way to Christ. But we are literally the body of Christ. We're Jesus' hands. We're Jesus' feet. We're Jesus' mouth and ears and eyes. John bore witness to the light of Christ. But now in Christ, Jesus said, we are the light of Christ. The power of one. You can change the spiritual atmosphere wherever you are. How do you do that? Well, that takes us to our second lesson from this passage. By living radically. Radical living is real Christianity. Verse 4 and 7 tell us, John the Baptist lived a radical life. He was radically committed to God. He was all in, 110%, and he was countercultural. He went against the current of popular pressure. He didn't care what people thought of his dress, his diet, his demeanor, or his decrees. He was authentic. He was genuine. He lived what he spoke, and that gave him authority. And John was on fire. John was radically outspoken about righteousness and justice. You would never call John the Baptist nice. John was not nice. 
No, no, no. Nice does not speak up. Nice does not stand up. Nice never offends. And nice is always politically correct. But nice does not change the world. I think we're in danger. I think we're in danger of domesticating Christianity. I think we're in danger of becoming so nice we're insipid. Tiptoeing around things. Tiptoeing around righteousness. Embarrassed about truth. We've embraced acceptance and tolerance and feelings to the expense of truth. The world doesn't need nice. The world needs truth and love. It's not either or. Jesus said it's both and. We're to speak the truth in love and we're to love with the truth. We can't separate them. They have to go together. John was radically on fire. And John was radically devoted to his purpose in life, to pointing to Jesus and preparing Jesus' way. John was radical in his lifestyle. No compromise. He sacrificed comfort and convenience for the call of God. John was constantly saying, I must decrease. Jesus must increase. John wasn't seduced by approval or power or the pleasures of this life. Have you given your life radically to Jesus? Are we radically committed to following Jesus? Are we compromising? I'm asking that. I'm not, I'm not looking at you. I'm asking that. I'm saying as a pastor after 38 years, 65, am I radically committed to Jesus? John the Baptist's life and faith is speaking to us beyond the grave. He's saying, prepare the way of the Lord so that he can do a greater work in our lives. What would it look like for you to live radically for God? Ask Jesus. He'll tell you. But Jesus spells radical. O B. E-Y. Obedience is radical. The third truth from this passage is break the silence. Verses 1 to 3, after 400 years of silence, there was this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John broke the silence by preaching in the wilderness. You know, the wilderness may be where some of you feel you're at today. And the wilderness is not a bad place. In fact, the wilderness 
is a gift. God calls us into the wilderness. Wilderness in the Bible is always a place of preparation, separation, and consecration. The wilderness is isolated. There's less distractions and interference. The wilderness is rough. It's conducive to repentance because it plows up the fallow ground in our hearts. And the wilderness is a separation It's where God can test our hearts. So if you feel like you're in the wilderness, it's not a curse, it's a blessing. God's drawn you. He wants to do something. He's about to do something. He's preparing you. John came preaching in the wilderness. And this word preaching is not standing up behind a pulpit. This is not what I'm doing today. That's not the word here. The word here is heralding. Proclaiming an event. Telling people about good news. Everyone can do this. It's not for professionals. It's for all of us. Everywhere. All the time. Preaching. Caruso. 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 That's the original word. Proclaiming. Heralding. Jesus is alive. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to do something in your life. He came preaching in the wilderness. John inspires me not to be silent about Jesus, about his love, about his salvation, about injustice, about truth and righteousness. Matthew 11, Jesus speaking to the crowds about John said, What did you come out to see? Did you come out to see a reed shaken in the wind? No. That means someone who's easily swayed by public opinion and circumstances. He said, no, no. John was not a reed shaken in the wind. He was a wind shaking the reeds. Today, as followers of Christ, it's easy for us to become reed shaken in the wind, easily swayed by opinions and cultural pressures and circumstances instead of the word of God. And equally... As pastors, we're in danger of our pulpits, our forums for teaching the word of God. We're in danger of it becoming weak. We're in danger of us becoming reeds that are blown about by the wind. Afraid of people's opinions, afraid of offending people, afraid of provoking people, afraid of losing people. Matthew 3 inspires us. Don't be silent. John's life and faith is speaking to us beyond the grave. He's saying to us this morning, you have a voice. Break the silence. Maybe you've been silent with a loved one. Maybe you've been silent with a workmate or a neighbor or a spouse. Maybe you've been silent about an issue in the family or at work or in the news in our culture. Maybe the Lord wants you to break the silence. Number four, the fourth truth is get right with God. Verse 2, 6, 8, and 10. John came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Translation, get right with God. The Messiah is coming. Now this word repent does not mean to confess. 
Don't confuse repentance and confession. Confession's important. We're going to come to that. But repentance is not confession. Repentance is not feeling sorry. Repentance is not regretting. Repentance means to rethink. It means to change your mind, change your thinking, change your attitude in the cold, hard light of day. Change your thinking and evidence it by a change in behavior. You know when someone's repented, their behavior changes. And repentance, repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is our best friend. We love repentance because it gets us right with God. It allows God to work in our lives and and God even enables us to do it. It's his goodness that brings us there. In verse 8 and 9, John says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. John's saying, Don't say you're a Christian because you go to church, you pray to prayer, or you read the Bible, but you're having sex outside of marriage, a marriage that God doesn't ordain. Or you're feeding yourself on pornography day after day and week after week or you're drunk or you get high or you're bitter or you're offended or you gossip or lie or treat people arrogantly and selfishly. John's saying repent. Repent, just turn to God. And the first step of repentance is confessing our sin. Jesus is waiting. He's so eager. He's just waiting to embrace us, waiting for uh, to forgive us and cleanse us when we acknowledge where we are wrong. When John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And James 5 says, when we confess our sins to one another, we experience physical and emotional healing. Maybe you know there's some attitude or behavior in your life, some way you're living that that doesn't please God. Maybe you know God has more for you, but you've been resisting it or avoiding it. John the Baptist's life and faith is speaking to us beyond the grave this morning. And he's saying, repent, confess. God's rule and reign and power are here now to help you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Help has arrived. Nothing is impossible anymore. Jesus is reigning in our midst. And then John, when he preached those hard words and all of Israel was coming out to him, I, I, I just find that astounding. The guy does no miracles. He's just preaching the truth. And the whole of Israel turns and comes out to him. And, 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 and the normal fare was they only baptized Gentiles when they converted to Judaism. But John's baptizing Jews. 
He's baptizing all Jews. They're coming out, wading into the river, confessing their sin, going down under the water. It's absolutely astounding what was happening. It was an awakening. Why was John so effective? Because God was moving and the people were expectant. He was the first prophetic voice in hundreds of years. He was fulfilling prophecy. And he was the immediate forerunner to the Messiah. Like John, we are living in times of awakening. We are living in the last days. One of our core commitments, one of our core values at Gateway, number 10, is living in, with urgency, not anxiety, not under pressure, but living with urgency for the second coming of Christ. We are the last of the last days. Christ could easily return in the next couple of decades. You say, well, you're not supposed to know that. Oh, yes. Yes, we are supposed to know that. Jesus was very clear. He said, you can't know the hour of the day, but you can know the season. And the metric we use is this gospel going to all the nations of the world. And at the rate that's happening, it could be in the next 10 to 20 years. One generation is going to be the last generation. And we're living in those days, you go to the news, there's such tumult everywhere. Incredible things happening. You think, how are we going to last? But in these last days, God has poured out His Spirit on all flesh. There was some divine activity in John's day. There's incredible divine activity in our day all over the world. And it's only going to increase as we get closer and closer to Christ's return. I hope you're excited. I hope your anticipation grows. I hope you're awake to what God is doing and not anxious or complacent. And lastly... The fifth lesson from this is let Jesus baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John said, I can only do something outwardly. I can only put you under the water. You confess your sins and, and ceremonially wash you on the outside. But oh, one is coming who is mightier than I. He will baptize you. He will plunge you under. He will surround you and overwhelm you and overtake you and envelop you and soak you with the power of His Holy Spirit and His holy fire. And then John said, Don't treat Jesus lightly. Jesus is not nice. We got to redefine that. Jesus is loving. Jesus is truth. Jesus is fearful and powerful. That's the kind of God you want to worship. You don't want to worship a nice God. You want to worship the God of the Bible, who is infinitely loving and merciful and good, 
and infinitely awesome and powerful and mighty. That's our God. And John said, this Jesus, he's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. And here we see again both the mercy and judgment of God. Jesus' mercy plunging us under, embracing us, enveloping us, filling us, forgiving us, cleansing us. And judgment, if we won't be gathered, we end up in unquenchable fire. John promised He's speaking to us. His life and his faith is speaking to us beyond the grave this morning. He's saying, will you let Jesus baptize you with his Holy Spirit and fire? The baptism of the Spirit is always all about control. Who's going to have control? Are you going to have control or are you going to let Jesus have control? And when we let Jesus have control, he fills us with his Holy Spirit and his holy fire. Maybe you feel empty this morning. Maybe you feel cool. Maybe you feel numb. Maybe you feel distant from God. Jesus wants to change that. He wants to fill you with the power and fire of his Holy Spirit. Let's stand together.